Let me read to us from the parable of the sower and then pray. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means, says Jesus. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty or thirty times what was sown. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word together this morning, as seed is sown, we pray that we might be good soil. That we would hear, that we would receive, that we would understand, and indeed that we would live. Amen. Four types of soil representing four types of hearts as the word of God is sown. As we hear and we receive God's message to us. Number one, do you remember it was the sown on the path, snatched away by Satan? Number two, rocky ground, shallow roots. So persecution comes and, and the plant can't cope and it dies. The fourth one is the healthy plant. That's what we want to be. But the third one struck me in preparing for this, this second sermon in this series. Did you remember it? The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And so my question for me in reading that and my question for us this morning in preparing for this is how is wealth deceitful? How does wealth deceive us in such a way that we are drawn away from God and his words, in such a way that it can't take root and it can't bear fruit in our lives. How does the deceitfulness of wealth make us unfruitful? That's my question for us this morning that we're going to explore. Um, before we get there, though, if you weren't here last week, or if you were, you might remember we're in one sense building a house. Um, last week, there were the foundations, as Tony was reminding us, and we saw that God was generous. That was the one point of last week, that you went away remembering that our God is generous. Generous in creation, generous in recreation. And we ended up by saying, it is okay to enjoy the generous gifts that our God gives us. They might be physical blessings or relational or experiential, but it was okay for us to enjoy them. And sometimes we get confused about that. It's that Christmas present on Christmas morning and that person who loves you gives you the gift and you open it and you unwrap it and it is absolutely perfect and it shows something of how much they love you and you are meant to enjoy that. But the danger is those gifts that we receive end up getting tangled up in our hearts and our hearts have a way of wandering. That's wonder with an A, not with an O. But they wander in such a way that the things that he gives us 
can at times overshadow the one who has given them to us. So to stretch the analogy too far, you open your present on Christmas morning and you get this present and you are so absorbed by it and you think, you really love me, you really know me, and then you ignore them for the next six months because this thing captures your heart, captures your affections. Wealth and money and riches have a way of deceiving us. And I take it Jesus spoke about money quite a lot because he knows that. He knows how easily we can be duped and deceived. And he knows how the things that we hold on to or the things that we aspire to can, can tell us lies and we can believe those lies. Whether we are, uh, forgive me, whether we are getting on a bit and you are dreaming of that thing that you perceive will make the difference. This is the thing that's missing. This is the thing you need. If you have that, then you'll be all right. Or if you're slightly younger, you're trying to work out what matters in life. What sort of job you would like and why. What kind of dreams and ambitions you want to build your life upon. Now, there are probably um, many ways that wealth can deceive us. We're going to think about three of them this morning. And in one sense, they are very simple. And in another sense, they are very complicated because they are very often blind spots for us and because our hearts can wander and get entangled. I've used this before, actually, but um, I think it's helpful again. It's from an author called Tim Keller, who some of you will have heard of, and he was doing a um, seven-part series of talks on um, the seven deadly sins, um, as you do. Uh, monthly men's breakfast, and his wife Kathy says to him, I bet that the week you deal with greed will be the lowest attendance. And she was right. Apparently it was packed out for lust, <laughs> packed out for wrath, and for pride, but nobody thinks they're greedy. And he said, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin, almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family and my soul and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money god's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. And if you're a driver, you will know the thing about blind spots is you have to check them. And if you don't check them, it gets dangerous. And so this morning, in a sense, we are just checking our blind spots. We are trying to think about how wealth deceives us. It's a deliberate thing this morning. And each time, there'll be three of them, and each time we will consider how Jesus is better. We're looking at three little sections from Luke's Gospel, so if you have a Bible in front of you, that'll be helpful. Um, and I want to say as well that they are all tangled up and they are joined together, but we're going to try and sort of disentangle and look at each one in turn. The first one is from um, Luke chapter 9, verse 23 to 25, and it's thinking about success. The things that we get or the things that we long for or the things that we acquire can make us feel like we've arrived, we are successful, and yet they deceive us. Luke 9, verse 23, Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Do you see that? You can gain the world but lose yourself. 
And we live in a world that urges us to gain the world. A world that makes us daily feel discontent. That daily makes us think we need these things when actually we don't. When these things are the answer, this is it, this is your solution. But it's not. We can gain the world in the stuff that we acquire. We can gain the world in the brands that we wear, in the postcode that we live in, in the way that we look, in our job title or our academic prowess. And at the end of the day, you might have all the stuff in the world. You might be at the very top of the tree. You might have power and respect in the workplace. You might have letters after your name. You might have big houses and Teslas and gadgets and holidays and all you could dream of. And and so much of Oxford aspires for those things. You might be a millionaire. You might be able to retire in your mid-40s and play golf and go to the Bahamas. You might gain the whole world. But what happens when you die? Because one day you will... And this life, in a sense, is just a a moment in the light of eternity. And you've not given Jesus a thought, and you've not bowed the knee to him, and you've, you've lost everything, including your very self, including your soul. And in the tiny amount of time, the blink of an eye that you live with all the stuff at the top of the tree, it's nothing compared to an eternity without him. Can I just talk to the younger generation for a second? I don't know if you include yourself in that. Um, I suspect we should all listen. But I, I want to encourage us to think carefully about how we define success. How do you define success in life? Because it's so easy to absorb the messages that bombard us from every direction for every day. And yet, of course, what we have or wear or look like or own or the cash in the bank or the car that we drive or the life that we aspire to or the jobs that we want or the things that we dream of do not and cannot and will not ever really define us. Because what you are before the Lord ultimately is what matters. Your identity in Christ, the kind of person you are. It's interesting, isn't it? This kind of season of financial crisis that many of us are feeling the pinch of. It's an interesting one for our hearts because for some, it might mean that we can't live as we have got used to or think we should or ought to be able to or in a way that we would dream of. Maybe because we've been working from faulty definitions of of success. So it maybe leaves us ask the questions of, well, maybe this is for home groups. What is success for you? What does success look like? Where have I put my trust? Why am I so discontent all the time? Why is the grass always greener? Why am I always looking at what they have and thinking, ah, that's what I need? Why do I spend so long on Amazon? or Rightmove, or Ikea, or or whatever it is for you? What would your internet history say about you? Am I, in a small sense, seeking to gain the world? Now, I don't think we're a particularly blingy church, actually. Um, We're not a church family full of extravagance. Um, The average price of the car in the car park won't be that high, but... Of course, that doesn't actually reveal very much because it doesn't reveal what's going on in your heart. It doesn't reveal what you dream about or what your nightmare is. 
Or that just that constant nagging dissatisfaction, that underlying, if only, if only, if only. Which is why actually the start of Jesus' teaching is so important. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. It's the daily battle, isn't it? So I'm not just talking to the younger people. It's all of us. We know the daily battle, the fight, the drift towards defining ourselves by the things that we have or the letters after our name or the status or the job or the prestige or whatever it is for you or the the gaining the world and however that translates in your context. The daily battle to keep the right definition of success front and center. Even if that means being different and sticking out. It's a daily battle because it's a lifelong battle. So number one, don't let wealth deceive you. Success is not in what you have acquired or clung onto or collected or squirreled away for three score years and ten or however long. True success, I think, is well done, good and faithful servants. So number one, success. Number two, security. Luke 12, verse 16 to 21. And he told them this parable. This is what we'll read for us. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. He thought he was secure because he had bigger barns. He wasn't because, again, bigger barns can't protect you from death. And so he was deceived. And what he did in one sense is perfectly sensible. What do you do in a bumper harvest? When you can't store it all, you've got too much grain, you haven't got enough storage, you don't want it to rot outside, you don't want it to waste it, what do you do? Well, you, you build bigger barns. And I think the bigger barns in and of themselves weren't the problem. The problem was his attitude towards the blessing that he had received, towards his wealth, towards himself, towards his God. And it's concluded at the end, this is how it will be. Whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And again, it's a challenge for us because money and things and pensions and savings and bigger barns, in one sense, none of them are bad. You can read in the scriptures that Paul at times worked hard. He saved that he might use the money later on. And so on missionary journeys, then he wouldn't be a burden to, to those receiving the gospel. Or Joseph and the Egyptians, they save up grain so that when famine comes later, they would have food to eat. And In one sense, saving is sensible and wise at times. The scriptures will attest to that. Saving is not wrong. Doing that is not wrong. But actually, our attitude toward saving, and especially toward our God, can be what goes wrong. Next week, there'll be more on wisdom and stewardship. But Morden Road, our security, whether as a church family 
or as individual families, or as individuals is not in what we have or, or don't have. It's not in the size of our pension pot or our savings or our ices or stocks and shares and assets, but our security comes from being in him. Because you are in Christ, you are in the most secure place in all the universe. And there is nothing that can separate you from him. Or to put it backwards, you can have barns as big as they come. But because you're not in Christ, you don't have real security. And the, banks, and the bank statement comes and maybe you feel secure or maybe you don't. But whichever way it goes, it's an illusion because we might not wake up the next morning. And what matters is being in Christ. Sometimes at Morden Road we sing, um, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness, or Jesus' blood and righteousness. So I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean or trust in Jesus' name. There's a newer version. I'm going for the older version. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And actually what spoke to me in reading through the words of the hymn just this last couple of weeks in preparing this is the security that belongs to the believer the security upon which this hymn is founded. So when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is my hope and stay. When you can't see him, when it feels like you're in the middle of a storm, when everything is giving away, we are secure because of Christ. Not because of what we have, not because of our pensions or our savings or our ices. And indeed, everything else is sinking sand. And again, maybe for home groups, but how do we save then? If it's not wrong, if the bigger barns in and of themselves are not wrong, then how do we save well? In a way that means we are rich towards God, verse 21. That's a question to wrestle with. As you save, how can you be rich towards God? Or is your propensity to save and to, to self-preservation something that, that squashes a richness towards God, that squashes a generosity? And of course, it's between um, you and the Lord or your family and the Lord, but what would your bank statement say about your Security. What story would they tell? So don't let wealth deceive you, number two. Security is not in what we've squirreled away. It's in more and more and more barns. True security is being joined to the Christ who died for you and raised again with him. And there is nowhere in all of creation more secure than that. Number three, service. Luke 16, 13 to 15. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You cannot serve both God and money. And again, the painful question is, 
Well, who do we serve? Which way do we go? And in one sense, the final point kind of draws together security and draws together success and ties it up with service. And so asks, where are our hearts? How are our hearts being deceived? How is wealth deceiving us? And again, let me try and illustrate it for you. It's, um, it's the time of year where we begin to think about the next financial year, um, kind of April onwards. And our church budget is really important. Um, in a few weeks' time, we'll be getting really going with it. But it's beginning to kind of be on the radar now. And it's important, not just because we want to pay bills and pay people and do stuff with the money, which is important, but it's important because it reveals what we care about. And maybe you're visiting um, this morning, or maybe you've settled with us and you're newly here, and you're, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face what kind of a church we want to be and the kind of stuff we we stand for and the things that matter to us. And you can read it on the website and you can get a welcome pack and eat your Twix and read on through. And you can see love, reach, build, send. But to be honest, it's only when you see what we spend our money on that you see what we really care about, who we really are. And so what do you love? What do you love? What would your budget say about that? Or maybe it's how you steward your time. Some of us don't have very much money, but we do have lots of time. How do you fill your week? What do you fill your diary with? Or your energy? We all have limited energy in one sense. But what do you expend yourself doing? And what story does that tell about your heart and what you love? Because we will all know this, money and wealth and whatever it is, golem-like, has a way of getting into our hearts, whispering promises to you, selling its lies to you. And so it becomes what drives us, and then it becomes what shapes us and defines us. And getting it means that we turn away from God. It draws us in. And just as Gollum, who loves his precious ring, he, he starts to call himself precious. Because the thing that he longs for and the thing that he loves becomes, well, he becomes like it. He becomes it in one sense. What we worship shapes who we are. So what do you love? Who do you love? And this idea of self and, and service and becoming too much about us and me and pride is, is not just a Jesus thing. It's right through the scriptures. Again, if you were to go like we did last week, the big kind of Bible overview, you'd see it coming up again and again and again. Moses leads the people out of Egypt, out of the edge of the promised land, final sermon, Deuteronomy 8, his last opportunity to warn them, and the, the thing that he wants to be left ringing in their ears is, Deuteronomy 8, verse 11 and 17, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. And when you've got loads of stuff, it's hard to remember the Lord. And when he has provided so much for you, it can be hard to lean on him. And Moses knows our selective propensity towards amnesia. We forget how we received what we got. And you look at your bank balance and you think, what have I done? I'm good. I'm good at this thing. Or pride, if you think I've done it in my own efforts. 
Friends, what's the tendency of your heart? Towards serving and being driven by what you love and it too much becoming about you. Take care that your heart is not deceived. Jesus is not joking when he says you can't serve God and money. And where we say, well, I'll give it a go, we will be deceived. Where your treasure is, there your heart shall be. So number three, don't let wealth deceive you. True service is not bowing down to the gods of this world, to money and stuff and savings and wealth and, and all of that. Those things will just eat you alive. You will never have enough. You will never be satisfied. You will never be content. Don't let wealth deceive you. True service is to follow and love the God who made you. And so Maldon Road, come to the Lord Jesus, the one whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, and he says, come to me for rest. Come serve him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for each of us and for us as a church that we would not be deceived by wealth and so become unfruitful. Help us as we think through what success means and guard us from that constant propensity towards wrong definitions. Lord, help us to long for well done, good and faithful servant rather than longing for the stuff that everyone else longs for. Help us not to be deceived when it comes to security and thinking we are secure because of what we have saved up and yet losing a richness towards you. Pray that you would help us. Um, help us too as we think through service and whether we serve money. Thank you for the starkness of the warning of Jesus. We pray that we might listen. Lord, we thank you that you are a generous giver. But please help us to use the things that you give as you would have us. Help us to remember the giver and not to get so sucked into the gifts. Help us to be different. Help us to be wise. Help us not to wander. In Jesus' name, amen.